Open your Bible to the book of Acts. Today is Ascension Sunday. Next week is Pentecost. And there is significance to that. So this week we're going to be in Acts chapter 1. Next week we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 1 records for us the ascension of Christ. Acts chapter 2 records for us the outpouring of the Spirit of God. The book of Acts, properly known as the Acts of the Apostles. That's the title of this letter, this book. It's the second in a two-volume work written by Luke. He was a Gentile, a Greek physician. He was a doctor. The gospel according to Luke, Luke is the same person that wrote the book of Acts. And so the Acts of the Apostles is the second in a two-volume work written by Luke, who was a physician. He was also a companion of the Apostle Paul. And Luke wrote the gospel that bears his name, which is referred to here as that former account. And he wrote the Acts as the second volume. Luke wrote Acts and the gospel according to Luke to a gentleman by the name of Theophilus, who was also a Gentile. And he wrote to Theophilus and the friends of Theophilus. He wrote to them, but he wrote it for us today to provide a well-researched historical apologetic or defense of or account of the truth and the power of the Christian faith. If you can imagine in the early church all of the stir of Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, all that was happening, all that surrounded Jesus in his three years of earthly ministry. And it wasn't just the Jews, but there were Greeks, there were Gentiles who wanted to know Jesus, who wanted to come to Jesus, who wanted to meet Jesus. But Jesus said, no, it's not time for that yet. I came for the house of Israel. But the time was coming when the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. It would go to all the nations, to all the Gentiles, not just to the Jews. And so there was this restlessness, there was this anticipation And there were these Gentiles who wanted to know about Jesus and wanted to know about this faith. Luke, who was a physician, wrote his gospel and he wrote the Acts of the Apostles to give that well-researched, very detailed account to testify to the truth and the power of the Christian faith. And the book opens with Jesus commanding his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit with power so that they would be witnesses to Christ. Jesus ascended 40 days after his resurrection. So Jesus is crucified three days later. He is raised from the dead. He's crucified on Passover. He's raised on the Feast of first fruits. And Pentecost occurred 50 days after first fruits. Jesus ascended 40 days after his resurrection. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurred on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after his resurrection. 
By the timing of the feast as ordained by God, we know that after Jesus ascended to the Father, the disciples waited in Jerusalem for 10 days for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and that outpouring came on the day of Pentecost. Today is Ascension Sunday. Next week marks the day of Pentecost. So today we want to look at Acts chapter 1 and the events surrounding the ascension of Christ and his command to his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. More than history, the book of Acts provides an example of life and work we are to be obediently engaged in today. So just like all the scripture, there is much history recorded for us in the scripture. Paul writes this to the Corinthians. He said, these things are recorded for us, and these people in these accounts, in these recorded accounts, are examples for us. Well, it's the same with the book of Acts. It's not just a historical account of the early church. It gives for us an example of how we are to live our lives and engage in our faith today. It shows us a daily pattern of life, of worshipful devotion to God in all we do, that is lived out as a witness to the world. In short, it shows us that our worship of God is not separate from any other part of our life. So Acts chapter 1, let's read the chapter. Follow along with me. Here's the word of the Lord, the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach until the day in which he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during forty days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, Behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room, where they were staying, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, all together 
the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that the field is called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, by transgression, fell, that he might go into his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel contained in your word and the gospel that is your word. Father, we thank you that you have preserved and given to us this word, these scriptures that, Lord, inform us not only of what has taken place in the past history of your church and of your people, but it informs us and gives us a guide and an example of how we are to live out our faith today, how we are to live our lives today. Each act of life being an act of worship before you. Father, we ask that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we will read about and study about in these next two weeks, that you would, by the power of that Spirit, open our hearts and open our minds Reveal your word to us and implant it deep into our hearts and cause an increase of your righteous fruit, a harvest, God, for your glory. Do this, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in this, in this first chapter of the book of Acts, we see Luke writing this account. And he begins this by reminding Theophilus of his former account, the gospel bearing Luke's name. In Luke's gospel, that gospel ends with Jesus getting ready to ascend, Jesus commanding his disciples, charging them with what we commonly call the Great Commission. And so we know at the end of the gospels, there is the ascension of Jesus and his earthly ministry in physical form in his body was finished on this earth. Here in the book of Acts, the second volume of this account that Luke is writing, he picks up right where he left off in the Gospels, and he begins with the ascension of Jesus. 
And with the ascension of Jesus, he goes on and he records all of those events that followed that. Luke records for us the ascension of Christ. He records the waiting of the disciples in Jerusalem. He records the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. He records the acts of the apostles and the continuing work of the people of God in obedience to the command of Jesus to make disciples of the nations. In Acts, we see the daily pattern of worship and the committed work of the early Christians. We see them continuing steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and of prayers in the house of God and from house to house. We're going to look at this specifically next week. And we see that they continued together as one. And that committed pattern of life in worship we see in them is the same pattern the Lord commands for us today as we carry out the kingdom work of making disciples. So we need to realize that Jesus saved us for a purpose. He didn't just save us so that we would have the comforting thought of knowing that we're going to go to heaven when we died. He saved us so that we would be busy about the business of his kingdom here on this earth. That's what Jesus told his disciples. He said, occupy until I come again. And that word occupy, our English word occupy, comes from a Greek word that literally means to be busy about the business. The business of what? The business of the kingdom. Occupy. Be busy about the business of the kingdom until I come again. Jesus gave the parables of the talents. And he left the, the Lord, remember, left the talents. He gave talents and he departed. And those people who were left with those talents were to be busy about the business of that master. So it is with us. Jesus has departed to his father. He has poured out upon his people the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit empowers us to do the work of the kingdom. The Holy Spirit is not given to us just so that we would have the assurance of heaven. The Holy Spirit is given to us that we would have the power to be witnesses, the power to do the work of the kingdom. And this is what we see in the book of Acts. And as Luke begins his account, we see Jesus before his ascension commanding his disciples to wait in Jerusalem. If I title this message, it's the work of waiting. The work of waiting. And the first work that Jesus commanded his disciples to do, in a sense, as he ascended, was to wait. Acts, and in, in actually in verses 4 through 8, Jesus commands his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. This was a promise they had already heard about from Jesus. It is the promise of the Holy Spirit that would proceed from the Father following the ascension of Christ. We see this recorded in John's Gospel when Jesus is with his disciples at the Last Supper and he is telling them, I am going to go away, but it's to your advantage. And they were sad, and they're like, no, you can't go away, Jesus. He said, no, I must go away, because if I don't go away, then the Comforter, the Helper, the Holy Spirit cannot come. Here in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Specifically, it was 10 days. 
The ascension of Jesus occurred on the 40th day after his resurrection, and the day of Pentecost was the 50th day after his resurrection. So for 10 days, they waited in that upper room in Jerusalem. And the Holy Spirit they waited for is called the Spirit of Truth. He is our helper. He's our comforter. He is the one who will teach us, guide us, and lead us into all truth. It is the Holy Spirit that reveals Christ to us. The Holy Spirit gives you eyes to see Christ. The Holy Spirit gives you a new heart. The Holy Spirit renews your mind. The Holy Spirit is the person of God and the power of God that conforms us to the very image of Christ. The ascension, the ascension of Jesus was necessary for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus commands his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And that promise was the baptism in the Holy Spirit that Jesus said would occur not many days from now. The command to wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit prompted his disciples to ask Jesus about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Now, why would they ask about that? Well, because they've been waiting for this. So this promise that they heard from Jesus, that Jesus spoke of, that's recorded for us in John's gospel, that might have been the first time that they specifically heard about a Holy Spirit who would come and dwell in them. But the promise of what the Holy Spirit would accomplish was a promise that was given to God's people centuries before. In fact, we can go all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the very beginning of creation, when the promise of God to man was, I will send the seed of the woman, and that seed of the woman will crush the head of the dragon, the head of the serpent, that was the promise of the coming of Jesus. And the promise of Jesus coming is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Because is Jesus with us today or has he left us? Well, if the Bible is true, he's with us. In fact, we just finished the book of Hebrews. And at the last of Hebrews, in the 13th chapter of Hebrews, this promise is recorded for us in the letter to the Hebrews that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. Well, how can Jesus be with us if he has ascended and gone to the Father? If you were listening, one of the little kids said it when we were having our story time up here. He lives in us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is in us by the Holy Spirit. And this is how we can know that Jesus has not left us and forsaken us. He lives with us. He dwells in us. And we dwell in Him. He abides in us and we abide in Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what the apostles, that is what the disciples of Jesus, that's what they were waiting for for those 10 days. And they did not probably more than likely fully comprehend what was getting ready to happen. But when that Holy Spirit was poured out and filled them, that same Holy Spirit that gave them the power to be witnesses began to teach them and instruct them. And as they began to read and study the scriptures, they began to understand the magnitude and the power of what had transpired as the Spirit of God was poured out. Thus we have the epistles, the letters written 
that really are the commentary of all that God has promised us throughout the entirety of His Word. And so the ascension of Jesus was necessary for the outpouring of the Spirit. And the command to wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit prompted these questions about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And the response of Jesus to this question about when will the kingdom be restored to Israel was this. Jesus did not respond. He he did not give them a timetable of future events, but he reminded them, and we too should be reminded today, that the purpose of the person and the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of God's children is for power to be his witnesses. For how long? For as long as God chooses. Well, how long do we have to wait for his kingdom to come and his will to be done? Well, it's coming and it's being done every moment of every day. This is why Jesus told us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We're not waiting for some... Well, we are waiting for an event to happen. But we're not waiting and doing nothing while we wait. We are waiting for the return of Jesus. But we're not waiting idly. We're not just sitting around waiting to see when that's going to happen. We are working. We are doing the work of the kingdom. And this is what Jesus commanded us to do. This is why your salvation is not just a ticket to heaven. Your salvation is for you to do the work of the kingdom on this earth until Jesus takes you to heaven or until Jesus comes from heaven. But your life, your time of visitation on this earth is for the purpose of God. It is not for your purpose. It is for his purpose. But if you will commit to live for his purpose, to find his purpose you will find the fulfillment and the happiness and the enjoyment in all that you could possibly desire and even more than you can imagine. It's difficult for us to believe that because in our sinfulness, in our sinful human nature, it is natural for us to live for ourselves and to ourselves and think that everything around us is for us when in reality We exist for God. God does not exist for us. We exist for God. And Jesus commanded that their witness was to begin in Jerusalem and it was to go to the ends of the earth. And the fact that we are here today preaching Jesus testifies to their obedience and it also testifies to the obedience of the generations since them. As they were... We are commanded to continue that pattern of obedience until the knowledge of the glory of God fills the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what the prophet wrote centuries before the coming of Jesus, before the birth of Jesus. That there was coming a day when the knowledge of the glory of God would fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's why we are here to multiply and to magnify the knowledge of the glory of God until that knowledge of His glory covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
The promise of the power that comes with the Holy Spirit is a promise of power for us today. It was not just a promise for them yesterday. It is a promise that is still relevant and real for us today. And the purpose of the Holy Ghost power is the same for us today. It was for them the power to be witnesses. It is the same for us today. It is the power for us to be witnesses. Witnesses where? In every place and in everything. We have this terrible tendency to compartmentalize and to segment and segregate our lives and say, this is my work life, this is my play life, this is my whatever life, and this is my oh yeah, church life. We need to have some life for God. So I'll give God, you know, a little bit of time here and there. Especially when I run into trouble, right? We run to God. And that's what we should do. We should run to God when we run to, into trouble. We shouldn't run from God. We should run right to God. That is the right thing to do. But God's not there just for us to run to Him in times of trouble. God is there, remember, the last of the letter of Hebrews? He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. It's not God who leaves us. It's us who leave God. And it's in those times when we need God most that we're reminded, oh yeah, I need to run to God. But if we would begin to renew our minds and condition ourselves to live in His presence, to abide in His presence, to live conscious of His abiding presence in our lives, God's not going to be someone we run to in time of need. God is going to be someone who is right there with us, abiding with us, and us abiding with Him. This is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the reality of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. And when we think of being a witness, we need to always consider the big picture, but we can't truly live out this witness unless our witness permeates all areas of our life down to the very fabric of our being and and in all that we do. So our witness is not only in the sky, it's mostly down in the weeds where we live our lives. You do realize that. It's in the weeds that we live our life. I mean, we get to go to the mountaintop and get the grand view, but mostly we live in the weeds. Did you guys see the picture of Mount Everest? You guys heard what's going on at Mount Everest? It was an amazing picture. The last picture I saw, you know, an American died there again a few days ago. And so they posted a picture. And the picture was of like 200 and something climbers, literally shoulder to shoulder, trying, waiting to get to the, to the summit of Everest. There's so many people climbing Mount, and this is why some people are dying, because they're having to wait so long on the mountain and they're not experienced climbers. And, and, you know, I think of Mount Everest, I'm like, who climbs Mount Everest? You know, maybe several people once a year, maybe. No, I mean, like, there were hundreds of people literally waiting to reach the summit. You get up to the summit, you take your selfie, and then you're supposed to go. But there's all this pushing and shoving. The point is, you don't stay very long on the summit of Mount Everest. You don't stay very long on the top of the world. Literally, Everest is the top of the world. And you don't go to the top of Everest to live there. 
You go to the top of Everest to get a view from the top of the world, but then you go back down to where you really live. And this is the point. We need to have the big picture. We need to be able to see the grand landscape and the grand view of things, but that's really not where we live. We live down in the weeds. This is where life takes place. It's in the nitty-gritty details of life. It's in the daily living. It's in the things that push against us and pull us uh, and pull on us every day, every moment of every day. This is where our stress comes from. This is where our fear comes from. This is where pressure comes from. It's in those details. It's living in the weeds. And that's where we most desperately need to know that God is present with us and that his power abides in us and works on our behalf. This is where we need to learn to wait on the Lord for his will to be done, for his leading, for his guiding. So it's, it's in the weeds that we live our lives. It's moment by moment. It's day by day. This is where his power is most necessary for us. And through his indwelling Holy Spirit, we have the reality of that power living in us and working in us. The question is, do we realize that? Do we know that? And we must realize that and we must know that. Verses 9 through 11 record for us the ascension of Jesus. So Jesus tells them to go and wait. He tells them why they're waiting. He tells them what that power is going to do, what it's for. And then verses 9 through 11, we see the, the record of the ascension of Jesus. And as Jesus ascended out of sight, two men dressed in white appeared to the disciples and declared to them that in the same manner Jesus ascended into heaven, he will come again from heaven. Therefore, with the ascension of Christ, there is the promise of the return of Christ. The very fact that Christ ascended to the Father gives to us the promise that he will return again from the Father to rule and to reign on this earth, and we are destined to rule and to reign with him. Verses 12 through 14, the disciples, after the ascension of Christ, return to Jerusalem to wait. They do this in obedience of Jesus. He said, go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So they returned to the upper room where they were staying, and they waited. And as they waited, the Scripture says they continued with one accord in, pra- in prayer and supplication. That word, to continue with one accord, means that they continued with one purpose and one mind. They had one purpose and they had one mind. All of those people, all of those 120 in that upper room had one purpose and one mind. And their purpose was to wait for the promise of the Father. And they were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit with the promise of power to be witnesses to Jesus. They were waiting to be witnesses to Jesus. Now, if you remember from the Gospels, that immediately following the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples were literally hiding out for their lives. They were literally scared to death that they too were going to be killed as Jesus was killed. 
And so they were hiding, so the Jews could not find them. Not, not very powerful witnesses, is it? And so Jesus tells them now, Jesus, he's raised, he appears to them, he opens the scriptures to them, so they gain some courage. But he says, but that's not all. You're not ready yet. You need to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit that I spoke to you about. And when he comes, you will receive power to be witnesses to me. And so Jesus commands them to go and to wait. And the power came when the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And this waiting for power with the expectancy to be witnesses was the single purpose and the single mind of these disciples. They heard and they obeyed the command of Jesus. And they were waiting and they were praying for his power so that they could become witnesses to him in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And their singleness of purpose and mind in prayer and supplication resulted in the great power and a great witness for Christ. And that same power is available to us today because the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us if we belong to Jesus. And not only will give us the power to be witnesses, but Paul writes that it will even strengthen our mortal bodies. So that the only excuse we have for not being a witness for Jesus is the one we make for ourselves. If you are in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand this. Now, this church came from a tradition that said you have to experience a second thing called the baptism of the Holy Spirit to get the fullness of the Spirit. I have good friends who believe that. And we're good brothers in Christ. We're good uh, sisters in Christ. We, we can get along together. But I don't believe that's what the Scripture teaches. I believe when you're born again and the Spirit of God comes to dwell in you, not part of the Spirit dwells in you, and now God's waiting to give you the other part of His Spirit. Because how can the Spirit be divided? And it's not just an anointing that you get. You get the Spirit of God when you're born again. The very person of the Godhead we call the Holy Spirit comes to live and to dwell inside of you. And He's not a divided person. In fact, Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians that you are complete in Him. And that word complete means exactly what we think it means. Complete. When the Spirit of God comes to dwell in me and I am born again and saved by the power of God, I am made complete in Jesus. The problem is not that we don't have enough of the Spirit. The problem is is we don't have the comprehension of who dwells in us. And this is the purpose of the Scripture. This is the purpose of the Spirit of God in us. The Spirit of God in us wants to lead us and guide us and teach us And lead us into all truth. He wants us to have a revelation of Christ. Christ who dwells in us by the Spirit. He wants us to have a revelation of the power that resides in us. That will make us powerful witnesses for Christ. So if you are in Christ, you have the power. So use it to be a witness for His name 
and for His glory. If you are in Christ, there is no excuse for any of us not to do that. And if we find ourselves lacking, then wait on Him and pray and ask and seek, and He will give you that power. He will reveal to you that power that is in you. In the final verses from 15 to 26, we see Peter seeking to obey the word of God by proposing a replacement for Judas, who was betrayed by Jesus, who betrayed Jesus. And in choosing the replacement of Judas, we see qualification, prayer, and providence at work. So they didn't just say, well, let's just everybody put your straws here and let's pick a straw and whoever gets the shortest straw takes this spot. No, there were 120 people in that room, and there were some qualified, and there were some not qualified. Some of those 120 didn't, they did not necessarily follow Jesus for all of those three years. It doesn't say. But here's what we know. The person that was going to take Judas's spot had to be a qualified person. So we see qualification, we see prayer, and we see providence at work. There's a practical consideration of who is qualified. Only those who demonstrate through life and experience that they are qualified as a candidate to be an apostle are considered. And the qualification is consistent with the teaching of Scripture. Elders must meet a qualification. Deacons must meet a qualification to be leaders to occupy those offices in the church. And the one who would occupy the office of an apostle had to meet certain qualifications. In this particular case, the qualification was that they walked with Jesus from the time of his baptism up until his ascension, which means they were eyewitnesses of his crucifixion and his resurrection. The person who took Judas's spot had to meet that qualification. And so two names were ultimately proposed, Joseph and Matthias. And they prayed that God would reveal the one he had chosen for that office. And they cast lots, and God determined the outcome, and Matthias was chosen by God. This phrase, casting lots, does not mean they voted. They did not vote. They cast lots. Now, we don't know what that looks like. We don't know what they used. We don't know how they did it. We just know that casting lots was a method by which God chose them and not man. And this is the point, and this is what they said, and this is what they prayed. God, you choose the one. You know the heart. You know all things. Choose the man that you want to fill this position. We don't know who it should be, but you do, so we look to you and we trust in you. So casting lots was a process that ultimately was determined by God and not by man. Man applied practical, God-ordained wisdom in proposing the two qualified candidates. They prayed that God would make his ultimate choice, and then they cast lots so that the choice would be from God and not from man. This reminds us of Proverbs 16.33. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast in the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You roll the dice... And every outcome is from the Lord. That's literally what Proverbs 16.33 says. You roll the dice, man rolls the dice, but the outcome is from the Lord. Not some outcomes, but it says, and every outcome is from the Lord. So the 
writer of Proverbs takes this most random act of rolling the dice and says every time you roll the dice, God determines the outcome. So if you think you're going to go to Vegas and, and uh, shoot dice and win a bunch of money, you better know that God's going to be the one that's going to determine that outcome. You could come back rich or you could come back very broke. The question is, do you trust God with that outcome? I don't advise you going to Vegas and gambling. But this is how the replacement of Judas was determined. Whether it was a literal rolling of the dice or not, the outcome was from the Lord. So today, we should not shy away from trusting God with the outcome of those things that are beyond human control. Have you noticed a lot of life is filled with things that are beyond human control? Too often we try to control outcomes, we try to craft strategies, and we make humanistic plans to accomplish God's divine purpose. And with such humanistic efforts, we forget to trust divine providence. We reject the outcome that God chooses, and we become disappointed or angry when the things that are beyond our reach and our control are determined by God and not by us. We determine a lot. We make decisions, we commit to action, but it doesn't always work out the way that we want it to. And at the end of the day, this is why we have to trust God with everything, with our good decisions and our bad decisions. Verses 24 through 26, it says, And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show us. Which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place? And they cast their lots and the lot fell to Matthias and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. There is no indication that Joseph, the guy who lost, the guy who was not chosen by God, there's no indication that Joseph or anyone else became offended because he was not chosen. He was just as qualified as Matthias, but it was not about the will of Joseph or the qualification of Joseph. It was about the will and the purpose of God. It's always about the will and the purpose of God. He was not offended because he and they all trusted in the divine providence of God. This reveals their humility and their submission to the will of God over and above their own will. When we get bent out of shape because God does something we don't like, it's a, it's a reflection of our pride and it's a reflection of our unwillingness to submit to God's will. It doesn't mean that, that God's providence is easy. It doesn't mean that God's providence is always joyful or makes us feel really good. God's providence can be hard. It can be painful. But the question is, will we submit to that providence and trust Him that He knows? So we should trust the Lord and His providence that works in our own life in ways both planned and unplanned for us. Because God's providence works through our planning but it also works in unplanned ways that are beyond our control. So we see here in the first chapter of Acts the promise made by God. We see the patient obedience required of us by God. 
We see the power given to us by God, the prayer and the supplication we offer up to God, and the providence of God that divinely rules all things. Promise, patience, power, prayer, and providence. These are necessary for every believer today and are often realized through the work of waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is a lost art. We're not very patient people. We don't like to wait. But if you've lived any amount of time on this earth, you know that God will put each one of us in purposeful situations that will require, against our will, against everything that we want, we kick against it, we fight against it, but God says, no, you're going to wait. The work of waiting is not easy, but it is necessary. It's very often the hardest thing we can do because it requires that we submit our own will to His and that we trust in His divine providence instead of our own human effort. We're able to do this by His grace. We look to that grace and we are reminded of that grace each time we come to this table. It is by grace. Everything we do is by grace grace and there is nothing we do that does not require his grace and even in those times when God says wait the work of waiting is a work of grace and it's a work that is necessary for us so I ask you to prepare your hearts to come to the table that you would prepare to come to Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Here's our charge today. We must know that the promise of God still applies. So we must ask, are we looking to His promise or are we looking to something else? We must know that, the obed that obedience will always require our patience. So we ask, are we impatiently rebellious or are we patiently obedient? We must know that the power to be witnesses is made manifest in us by the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So we ask, are people seeing the sin and carnality of our humanity or the fruit and power of His Holy Spirit dwelling in us? We must know that prayer and supplication with thanksgiving should be present in everything, both bitter and sweet. So we ask, do you find yourself feeling fearful or prayerful? Do we find ourselves feeling entitled or thankful? And we must know that divine providence is something we must not only accept, but we must embrace it and take comfort in it. So the question is, are we trusting in ourself and what we think we control, or are we trusting in His divine providence in the face of what we do not and what we cannot control? If our witness is lacking, if our power is waning or missing altogether, we need to do the work of waiting on the Lord. We need to enter into prayer and supplication 
with one purpose and one mind to know his promise and experience his power to be witnesses to him. We must pray and do the necessary work, even the work of waiting, so that the knowledge of the glory of God would be known and seen and fill our life, that we would obey the command of Jesus to do the work of the kingdom and to make disciples, starting with us and those around us. We must pray for his kingdom to come, his will to be done in our own hearts first, in our families, in Christ's fellowship, and in all the people of God on earth as it is in heaven. This is our charge from God. Our obedience is not suggested, it is commanded. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, now and forevermore. Amen.